You're listening to Hello Vancouver. I'm your host, Temple Lentz. Thank you for joining us. On today's show, I'm speaking with Frank King, comedian and keynote speaker about depression and suicide. It may seem a little incongruous that a comedian speaks about depression and suicide, but this is something that affects many people. Frank uh, has a very powerful TED Talk, which you can find at franktedtalk.com, where he talks about his own personal experience with having depression, how it runs in his family, his experiences with it, and his, uh, thankfully, uh, failed attempt to take his own life. Suicide is the 10th leading cause of death in the United States, and as of uh, 2017, the statistics are that every year, over 44,000 people die in America, die by suicide. And for every suicide, there are 25 attempts. Frank is visiting Vancouver, Washington on the 14th of September to give the keynote presentation at the annual fundraising luncheon for the Columbia River Mental Health Foundation. We were fortunate enough to speak with him by telephone to hear a little bit more about him and about the talk he'll be giving when he speaks at Columbia River. Frank King, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. It was part of a plea bargain and uh, I want to fulfill my... (laughs) (laughs) I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So uh, before we get into uh, the, the really heavy stuff, let's talk a little bit about your career and just kind of let folks know who you are and where you've been. So you were a writer on uh, Jay Leno for about 20 years? Yes. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but when Jay started hosting The Tonight Show for Johnny, you know, guest hosting, mm-hmm. uh, Johnny was very mercurial. So he would announce to the staff on a Friday night, hey, I'm taking next week off. So Jay would be then responsible for Tuesday through Friday, 18 jokes a night. So he had a cadre of folks such as myself who he would put the word out, I need jokes next week for the monologue. And and they were, we were dubbed fax writers back in the day when faxing was actually a thing. <laughs> and so I would send in 12 jokes a day. And I usually averaged I usually averaged one or two in the monologue every week. And then when he got the show for real, they, he kept on. He changed the fax number, got rid of the uh, the dead weight, and but I got I got to stay on as uh, as a you know as a writer uh, after after he took over the show for real, and then continued to pump in twelve to twenty four jokes a day and average one or two a week in the monologue. Now you don't get a you don't get a job like that just like uh, as a fresh startup uh, comedian. How did you how did you get started in stand up? I started uh, in fourth grade. I uh, was the bane of most of my teachers' existences. And uh, in high school, I did the talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up at the high school talent show. And so I won the talent show, and then I said I was going to be a comedian. My mother said, you're going to college. Uh, you can be a goat herder when you get done, but you're going to be a goat herder with a degree. So I, I went to UNC Chapel Hill and go heels. And I got a couple of degrees, actually, one in political science, one in labor management, and then I had trouble getting a job because every recruiter who looked at me thought to himself or herself, this guy's a clown. Correct. And <laughs> I got a job with my then father-in-law's insurance company, moved to San Diego. And lo and behold, in San Diego, California, there was a comedy store branch, and they had amateur nights, two nights a week. And that was the – I felt a magnetic pull every time I drove by there. I went in, did my first five minutes, and it's comedy's one of those jobs where you can make up your mind at that moment. Either this is for me or this is not for me, and I – 
in that five minutes, uh, I thought to myself, I'm going to do this for a living. I'm not sure how that looks, but I'm going to do this for a living. And that was April 1st, April Fool's Day, 1984. And then a year later, um, having having my, my first wife and I having split up, uh, I met a lovely young woman to whom I'm still married 30 years later. Um, in December of 85, I said to her, I'm going on the road to be a professional stand-up comedian. I've got 10 weeks booked, which I thought was forever. And would you like to come along? And she said, yes. We put everything in storage we couldn't fit into a little tiny Dodge Colt and took off. And she and I were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row nonstop. Oh, my goodness. No no home. Just, just hotel to hotel and comedy club to comedy club. And that was 85 to 93. And so we worked with, and back then they put the comics up in what they call the comedy condo, three-bedroom condo. So you not only work with Jeff Foxworthy or Dennis Miller or Ellen DeGeneres, you're living in a condo with them for that week. Mm-hmm. So uh, it was an amazing time to, because, you know, they're smart and they're funny. Some of them were just personal, you know, nightmares in terms of their personal lives. But, you know, bright, funny, smart, and Ron White and Bill Ingball and Kevin Nealon, Dana Carvey, Rosie O'Donnell. So it was a time when they were just Jerry Seinfeld. They were just comics, just uh, run-of-the-mill journeyman comics. And, of course, many of them went on to much bigger and better things. And then yes. I came off the road because I got offered a uh, co-hosting job at the number one rock and roll, the classic rock station in Raleigh, North Carolina, my hometown. And I lasted 18 months. Uh, <laughs> and I, I was able to move down to number three and uh, – <laughs> got fired, but you know radio. There are two kinds of people in radio, people who've been fired, people who are going to be fired. Uh, then I, I, you know, my act had been very clean all those years, and I paid for it in in a lot of the one-nighter beer bar, pool hall, honky-tonks where, you know, some guy screams, tell us some jokes we can dance to. <laughs> uh, here, here comes a slow one. You can slow dance. Uh, so I paid the price in the clubs for clean, clever, topical. I mean, I almost had to hand out a syllabus some nights. Okay, look. Um, Saddam Hussein is in charge in Iraq. Now, trust me on this. And then you go into the joke because they need that piece of information to, uh, to actually get the joke. So the good news is I made the jump from the bar room to the boardroom, began doing corporate comedy, clean corporate comedy, mm-hmm. because HR people will pay a great deal of money to make sure that no one at the event is offended. Yes. Well, and it was huge until the recession. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, with the recession and such, people weren't willing to pay that kind of money f- just for funny. Mm-hmm. So I read a book by Judy Carter. She was a magician. Her props didn't arrive one night, so she became a stand-up comedian and then a speaker. Mm-hmm. And she wrote a book about becoming a speaker called The Message of You, How to Turn Your Life into a Money-Making Speaking Career. Mm-hmm. And And it turned me from a funny speaker to a speaker who's funny and I didn't think I really had anything to say that any that would benefit anybody you know make a difference and as I'm reading the book then it occurred to me hold on you've seen the TED talk mm-hmm. uh, that's I, I mean I got chills when the idea hit me I'm like oh my lord uh, I do have a story to tell and so that was the that was the beginning of me niching my business to su- depression suicide prevention and such. And then I got the idea. My wife's a big TED Talk fan, and I got a chance to audition for a TED Talk. 
Well, let's talk about let's talk about the TED Talk a little bit. So it's a TEDx talk that you did that folks can find online. And uh, it is you talking about depression and suicide and as it relates personally to you. Can you tell us a little bit? That's a little bit of a jump. You know, people think, oh, a comedian is a funny person. <laughs> What's this guy doing talking about suicide? Uh Connect that dot for us. Oh, well, and you know what? One of the reasons I did the TED Talk was to get street cred as a speaker because I'd been funny for so long with, you know, I, I was making a living but not a difference, and I wanted to jump to make a difference. So, and the question does come up. I even address it in when I keynote. I go, I know what you're thinking. Um, comedian? Comedy writer? Keynoting on depression and suicide? What exactly? Uh, I go, well, you know, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I did. I did say it all day in Express last night. The real answer is that uh, I believe a comedian is a, is a good choice because a comedian's job, dating back to the court jester, is to speak truth to power on behalf of the powerless. And I believe I speak truth to the power of mental illness on behalf of, of those who are often uh, powerless in its grip. Uh, two, I believe, at least for me, depression and, and mental illness is a, is a hopelessness. That's the emotion. And I believe where there's humor, there's hope. Where there's laughter, there, there's life. And that nobody dies laughing. So my grandmother had died by suicide. My mother had found her. My great aunt had died by suicide. My mother and I, at the age of, I think, three and a half, four years old, found her. Mm. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'll spare you the details. If you go to YouTube, type in Frank king and suicide it will come right up and you can hear the story of uh, of uh, you can hear the, the story um and i myself came off the close in 2010 we talked earlier in the interview about how the business changed from people weren't willing to pay that kind of money for stand-up anymore uh and and my business dropped off 80 percent in 2009 early 2010 and we lost everything uh, mm -hmm. in a chapter seven bankruptcy and uh and so, um, and it was, it was devastating for me and for my wife. And I, I just, I, I battled depression all my life. And I always wondered, cause I was wretchedly, raggedly depressed at some of the best times in my life. And I always wondered what would happen when that happened. And I was, you know, it was the worst time. Right. And I, I, when I, when I talk about, um, suicide, I say the questions you ask are, um, are you depressed? Yes. Um, are you having thoughts of suicide? I was. Do you have a plan? I did. Uh, tell me your plan. And my plan was detailed. And so so if that's the case, then you should never leave the person alone. Your job at that point as a mental health first responder is to get them on the phone or texting. Nowadays, there's a text line for younger people because they're more forthcoming with texts. Your job is to get them on the phone or texting to the suicide um, uh, lifeline. The idea, and if they won't pick up the phone or won't pick up and start texting, then you pick up the phone. You call the suicide lifeline, and the volunteer will do their best to talk the phone into the hands of the person who is uh, in crisis. So I was in crisis, and I had plans to kill myself. The as you as it, as it says in the TED talk, um, a friend of mine, Glenn Friesman from Philadelphia, who's blunt as a ball peen hammer. I sent him a a rehearsal version of the Ted talk. And he called, called me shortly thereafter. And he goes, you know, you were going to do yourself in, um, in April of 2010. Why didn't you die by suicide? And I said, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? Um, <laughs> I actually said that that conversation actually took place. So the reason I didn't was, and this is a popular misconception about depression and suicide. People assume when you're, you are, 
on the cusp of, of, of dying by suicide that you are completely irrational. You know, your rational brain has fled. Mm-hmm. That's not generally not the case. The, the irrational part of my brain wanted to be gone. The rational part of my brain knew that I had a million dollars in life insurance, but wasn't sure that I had had it long enough. You have to have it two years or else it won't pay anything to the beneficiary. Mm-hmm. It's called the suicide clause, colloquially. So I called my insurance agent, and we're chit-chatting away. He was aware of our financial situation. He was aware of my mental conditions. And I just asked him in passing, because we with depression and are great actors, hey, when did, that, uh, when did I, how long have I had that life insurance policy? He goes, I don't know, I'll check. So as he's clacking away on the keys, he, it hits him why I asked. Mm-hmm. And he stops, and he goes, no, don't. Do it, which eight out of 10 people who are suicidal are ambivalent on average. So sometimes just the right word at the right time can stop the cascade and prevent, at least in the moment, uh, death by suicide. Uh, It turns out I had had the policy not two years, but 22 months. So I had two months to go before I could die by suicide and have my wife collect the million dollars in life insurance. Uh, the rational part of my brain that was still operating re- refused to leave her brokenhearted and destitute. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't give up on the idea of suicide, but I decided not to do it that day for those reasons. Mm-hmm. And then two two months later, we'd file bankruptcy. Things were, you know, um, not saying there was a light at the end of the tunnel, but it, you know, it was there was a glimmer at the end of the tunnel, and and that was April 2010. And we've sort of been clawing our way back you know, from that ever, ever since. As you, as you clawed your way back, I, I think that you, you tell such a compelling story, your own personal story. And I love the fact that you, you bring up that sometimes saying something as simple as don't do it when somebody says they're thinking about it can make all the difference in the world. And then I think about you know, that moment after, say that the, the two months, you're waiting, you're biding your time for the two months, and then the two months comes. And for someone who's struggling with depression, uh, how did you manage your, your mental health and self-care, you know, the next day and the next day and on and on? Well, I, I take a supplement over the counter. It's called SAMe, Sam, S-A-M-E. It's good also for your liver. We have a cat who has um, chronic liver disease. She's on it as well. And it's also good for mild depression. So it sort of takes the edge off. I've been taking it for years. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And then I just gutted it out. I actually, we actually had medical insurance. But back then, before Obamacare, which is not perfect, but one of the things that Obamacare did that is stellar is it, it makes the insurance company pay the same benefits for mental illness as they do for physical illness. Mm-hmm. Uh, back then, I only had like six visits with a psychologist. And if I had gone back then, uh, I, have, I have heart issues as well, high cholesterol. I've had several heart surgeries. So that's two pre-existing conditions. If I'd gone to see a psychologist, that would have been 30 pre-existing conditions and would have made it very difficult from that point on. So I know it, it, it sounds really odd, but I didn't go see a psychologist because I guess I was worried that if I survived and had to buy health insurance in another state <laughs> at some point, I wouldn't be able to get it because of the pre-existing conditions. Of course, if you if you die by suicide, you know that pretty much eliminates the pre-existing conditions. So uh, yeah, I just gutted it out. And it, it, bankruptcy is one of those things that either blows a marriage apart or drives you closer together. And fortunately, 
Um, my wife is, is, uh, a great person and, and we work through it together and we, and it also allows you to drill down to what you need to survive, you know, financially in terms of food and shelter and clothing and whatever, and what you don't need, but want. And so we drilled right down to the basics slowly, but surely. Well, I say together, it was us, uh, three dogs, seven cats, um, <laughs> Yeah, we're the crazy cat people in the neighborhood. Yeah, so you did bring uh, we, a little bit of the South with you. When you... <laughs> yes. Oh, Lord. Uh, we clawed our way back. And I joined a chamber here in town, the Springfield Chamber. And it's, it's a great group. And, and uh, it allowed me to meet a lot of people because I only knew one person when we got here. And, I, you know, I've got a business. And I need to. And slowly but surely, over the several years, the speaking business became began to come back. Yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been a, an education. It's uh Thought about writing a book called Bankruptcy, Not the Last Chapter. So if uh, – how can you tell if someone is depressed? I mean if somebody comes up to you and says, I am thinking about killing myself, you talked about the questions you can ask them. But a lot of folks aren't going to be that forthcoming. Are there ways you can sort of suss it out to try to help them? Yes. I would say, I would say the majority of folks are not going to be forthcoming. I, I rarely talk about – unless I'm keynoting – I rarely talk about my mental illness because, you know, people are, people are, humans are solution oriented. You, you tell somebody that you're depressed and, well, try fish oil. See, <laughs> 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 I wish I'd thought of that. Uh, so people are generally not, generally not forthcoming because, and also there's a stigma attached to mental illness. It's, you know, it's, I, I equate it to alcoholism about 50, 60 years ago. Mm-hmm. There was a reason that alcohol, that AA was anonymous because back then it was considered a, um, a character flaw, you know, a moral failing, kind of where mental illness is still today. Mm-hmm. That it's, you know, that you're, I've got a friend who is battling schizoaffective disorder and, and it's just his family. They just, they can't wrap their minds around it. It's very difficult to be empathetic. And matter of fact, they're being, they're not, they're not, not only not helping, they're hurting. Right. You know, if, if you don't quit having delusions, nobody's going to hire you. Well, if I did quit, I would. <laughs> um, so here's the uh, depression. It's, you look for the signs. Because oftentimes when people look back after somebody's died by suicide, then they go, oh, yeah, I remember when he said, I remember when he did, right. I remember how he began to behave. For example, people who are depressed oftentimes have difficulty getting started in the morning although they rally in the afternoon. Um, they often take less and less enjoyment in social activities that they used to get a great deal of enjoyment from and begin to isolate. So if somebody you know who is the life of the party and all of a sudden they're not there and then they're hard to reach or they've moved, oftentimes people move, um, then isolation, isolating is, a, uh, is, uh, is one sign. Uh, eating too much, not able to eat, sleeping too much, not able to sleep. So either one of those two. Uh, and the, what I, in my keynote, I say, okay, here, here's what you do. If you suspect, but this, you know, sometimes just starting the conversation is palliative. And I say in my Ted talk, it's amazing that nobody talks about amazing and sad that nobody talks about depression and suicide, because every time I say those words out loud, I hear the most amazing responses from people, some of whom I've just met. I, I went to the vet the other day to the, the physical therapist for one of the German shepherds, and I'm talking to the veterinarian. Veterinarians have a 
they, uh, they're at high risk for suicide. One in six consider suicide. Mm. And we talked about that. And she goes, yes, um, my son battles depression. <laughs> we, we just met. Uh, he's <laughs> off at college and I'm terribly worried about him. So I, I told him what told her what I just told you. So here's what not to say to somebody who is actually honest enough to admit, if you ask them, are they depressed? Don't say, oh, come on, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Turn that frown upside down. You just need to check up from the neck up. Uh, yeah, it's, and it's very common to say that because people, they don't understand just how deep and dark that hole is. What you do say is, oh, oh, well, I'm here for you and mean it. I understand that you're not crazy, lazy, or self-absorbed. I know that that depression is a, is a mental illness. The good news is with time and treatment, things will get better. And I will take the time and mean it. And I will help you get treatment and mean it. And then the most difficult question of all, and I, when I was talking to my friend this week, who's battling schizoaffective disorder, it was difficult for me to say this. Mm-hmm. I said, are you having thoughts of suicide? And there is an old, used to be called a wives tale. And I guess it's an urban legend that you should never mention the S word to somebody who's depressed. As if they, they, had, they hadn't crossed their mind. <laughs> Suicide, what a great idea. You definitely need to say the S word out loud. Now, let's talk about before we go into what to say once, what not to say is, oh, come on, you've got so much to live for. You're just being melodramatic. You're looking for attention. Oh, nobody who talks about it ever does it. Not true. What to say if somebody says I'm having thoughts of suicide, do you have a plan? If they have a plan, what is your plan? If they're depressed and having thoughts of suicide and have a plan and it's detailed, then that's when you do not want to, if you can possibly help it, leave them alone. If you have to leave, uh, try to have somebody take your place. And again, as a mental health first responder, your job is to get them talking to somebody at the suicide lifeline. Right. And again, if they won't pick up the phone, then you pick it up and you call in. Hopefully the volunteer will be able to talk the phone into the hand of the person who is in crisis. The question always comes up. Do you call the cops? Two down nine one one. Only if they are an immediate threat to themselves or others. That's when you you don't have any choice but call nine one one. When I do colleges occasionally, actually actually more than occasionally this fall, uh, the students will say to me, you know, my roommate said to me if if I told her folks that she was depressed and having thoughts of suicide, you know, she wouldn't be my friend anymore. Maybe promise not to tell them. What should I do? I said, you should call her folks and you should tell them. And then if your friend is really upset, say, look, you can unfriend me on Facebook. You can block me on Instagram. You can never speak to me again, but I could not have lived with myself if I had not called your folks and alerted to them that you are struggling as you are. Mm -hmm. So the short answer is call the folks. And there's a great class. It's called Mental Health First Aid. I believe it's mentalhealthfirstaid.org. I, there are classes all over Oregon. If you go to mentalhealthfirstaid.org, try .com too, just in case it's a for-profit, you can find classes, and they generally cost between nothing and 25 bucks. It's an eight-hour class. They provide lunch, and it's mental health first aid. It teaches you the basics of being a mental health first aid responder. So you can, you can, you can have tools in your mental health first aid toolkit that you can do to create an action plan, if somebody drops that grenade in your lap, I'm depressed and having thoughts of suicide, so you know what to say and do just to get them. It's like being an EMT. The EMT, when I had my heart attack, they didn't fix my heart attack, but they, they stabilized me. Mm-hmm. So they give me the hospital, let, let the professionals take over. So the, um, 
but yeah, that's it's mentalhealthfirstaid.org or .com, and it's very inexpensive, eight hours. There's an adult version and then and a um, youth version, and it's, it's it's great information for just about anybody. And you're coming to Vancouver, Washington, to uh, give a keynote talk for the Columbia River Mental Health Services Foundation. Yeah, it's Thursday. I came prepared. It's Thursday, the 14th of September. The uh, luncheon is noon to one. And the doors open at 1130. It's at the Vancouver Hilton on West 6th. The funds go to support our Hopes and Dreams grant program. Columbia River Mental Health is one of the largest uh, mental health service providers in, the, uh, in southwest Washington. They are serving a large segment of the community. Now, if somebody can't get enough and wants to come to the luncheon uh, and hear you and support this, uh, where can they go? How can they get more information? On the off chance somebody wants to do that, uh, they can go to the Columbia River Mental Health website. I've got the address. Oh, it's CR, CCAT, R. Robert, M. Mary, H. Harry, CRMH, which is uh, Columbia River Mental Health Foundation.org, CRMH Foundation.org. Wonderful. Oh, it's free to get in. <laughs> well, so, hey. Doesn't cost, doesn't, doesn't cost anything to go. Frank King, comedian, keynote speaker, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's been delightful, Temple. I, uh, and again, uh, I believe that this is the song that I came to sing. And I did a college showcase recently, 800 students in the audience. One young woman came up afterwards and said, you made me weep. And I said, how did I make you weep? She goes, you know, you said in your TED Talk, I did, I did basically a shorter version of my TED Talk. When your car broke down, you had three thoughts. Uh, and by the way, this is always on the menu for me. Uh, I thought, well, the car broke down. I could get it fixed. I could buy a new one, or I could just kill myself. That that option just pops into my head. That's 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 my tribe. People who battle mental illness and for whom suicide is always on the menu, even for the smallest of things. She said to me, you know, I've had thoughts like that all my life, and I thought, I thought I was the only one. And when I heard you say it out loud, I realized that I'm not a freak. I, I it. Other people battle this, and other people think this way, and, and, and I, should, I thought it, I would grow out of it, and I said, I'm 60. I don't think that's going to happen. <laughs> uh, but I did say, the good news is, just because you think it doesn't mean you have to act on it. So that, that's the reason I do it. It's for that one person who thinks they're alone in the world, they're a freak, that nobody else thinks this way, and all of a sudden they find out, oh, my God, it's a thing, and other people have it. And they and they and they survive and thrive. So that's that's you know I mean the, the paycheck yeah. is great, but that that moment at the college showcase was just uh, she wept, I wept, you know. Well, Frank, thank you so much, and all the best to you and your family and your menagerie. Uh, we'll look forward to hearing and seeing more from you. If you'd like to see Frank give his TED talk, you can go to frankTedTalk.com. And uh, you can also find out much more about Frank on the interwebs, where if you search him, you will find yeah, many things. <laughs> yeah, well, and there's comedy there, too, as a matter of fact, but Frank King, comedian. And you can watch me age progress from like 89 to the present day. Excellent. Well, we'll get right on that. Frank, thank you and have a great day. Thanks, Devil. And that's our show.
Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Temple Lentz, and this has been Hello Vancouver. If you'd like to find out more about our live stage shows, you can go to hellovancouver.us and see videos from past performances. Also, please don't miss our upcoming September 20th show at Warehouse 23 in Vancouver, Washington at 7 p.m. Tickets are available online at hellovancouver.us. Hello Vancouver is produced by High Five Media. Thanks for being here, and we'll see you next time.